when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Which means when Christ calls a man, he gives him complete, total forgiveness for his sins and then demands that he lives a life of obedience. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part one of What Does It Mean to Be Found in Christ? A series in seven parts from Pastor Paul Twiss. Pastor Paul's text for this series is the Apostle John's first epistle, chapter three, verses four through 10. By way of background and context, the Apostle John had physically walked with Jesus for three years. He had been present at his Lord's transfiguration his crucifixion, and his ascension. This apostle also wrote the Gospel of John and the Book of Revelation, both included in the canon of New Testament Scripture. He also wrote three epistles, or letters, late in his life, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, also contained in New Testament Scripture, and he knew of what he spoke. The first epistle was necessitated by falsehoods brought into the early church, propagated by false teachers that had, among other things, questioned the humanity and deity of Jesus Christ. As a result, many new believers had lost their assurance of salvation, and some had even followed these apostate teachers, which led them into, quote, lawlessness, according to the apostle. Here's part one of what does it mean to be found in Christ? So our text this evening is 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. The word reads, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot Keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And so reads the word of God. The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering that every Christian must encounter is the call to abandon any affections for the things of this world. Indeed, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Those words are 
probably familiar to a lot of you. They were written by Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. And in that book, he's writing against what he calls cheap grace. He advocates for costly grace. Cheap grace is that grace that justifies not the sinner, but the sin. Cheap grace is that grace whereby we understand our sins are forgiven and therefore we do not need to do much about our sins. Cheap grace is that grace where we understand that at the cross there is forgiveness to be found and therefore there need not be a fight in our lives this day against sin. Cheap grace is that grace that is very at home with an affection for things of the world in the Christian's life. Costly grace, by contrast, is biblical grace. Costly grace understands that it cost God a great price to purchase us, to redeem us. It cost him his own son. Costly grace, that is biblical grace, understands that when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Which means when Christ calls a man, he gives him complete, total forgiveness for his sins and then demands that he lives a life of obedience. And that life of obedience in large measure is a life of pain and suffering in the direction of working out holiness and killing the deeds of the flesh. Bonhoeffer reasoned that cheap grace was the product of secularization. Secularization, which has happened at a pace in Europe and is happening over here in America too. It is secularization that has invariably affected the church and so at some level has found its way into the Christian's thinking today. Costly grace understands that Christ came that we might not sin. And that is the message of the text this evening. John sets forth a very challenging message here, that Christians don't sin, that Christ came that we might not sin. Now, I want to be clear, John's aim is not exactly parallel to Bonhoeffer's. John's aim here fits into a much bigger argument, the argument of the whole book, which is to give assurance. The stated purpose of 1 John is to give the reader an assurance of their salvation. Right at the very end, in chapter 5, verse 13, he says, I'm writing to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you might know that you have eternal life. In antiquity, the aim would often be left right until the end of the letter. John gives several, I'm writing to you so that statements throughout 1 John, but it's at the end that he seems to give the overarching aim, which is to give the reader assurance. Now, assurance, as you study 1 John, is more than simply answering the question of how I can know that I'm saved. That is how you and I typically think about assurance. John is tackling it from a much broader angle, 
And that is to say, what does it mean to be in Christ? What does it mean to be found in Christ? That is why 1 John is so Christological. At every corner of this text, he's bringing the Savior into view because we need to understand Christ in order to understand what it means to be found in him. One of the outworkings of being in a position of assuredness is that we have joy. John is clear that when you find yourself confident in the knowledge that you are indeed in Christ, one of the outworkings is joy, abundant joy, fullness of joy. Indeed, I would go further and say that all joy in the Christian life is ultimately founded upon a foundation of who we are in Christ. If we are not certain of our salvation in Christ, we will be Christians that are nervous, that are timid, and that are sad, that lack the joy that the Lord wants us to have. More than that, when we find ourselves in a position of assuredness, confident of what it means to be found in Christ, so we also enjoy other blessings such as an intimacy in our prayer life. We go before the Father with confidence. We seek out communion with intimacy because we have no reservations about approaching a holy God because we understand what it means to be found in Christ. It also brings about a zeal in our service. We don't hesitate to give of ourselves, of our time and our efforts because we understand and we're confident of our identity in Christ. And we understand that if that's secure, then we really have nothing to lose. And so we give ourselves with a zeal to the service of the church. It also brings about a humility in our fellowship. Because when we're assured, that is when we are confident of who we are in Christ, then we don't need to project any kind of pretense. We don't need to pretend to be someone we're not. We don't feel the need to show other people what we think they want to see. But we're confident and secure of our identity in Christ, and so a certain humility starts to characterize us. And we're happy to be who we are, who the Lord made us to be, because we know who we are in Christ. All of these blessings, and we could go on, are the fruit of assurance. They work out of John's goal, which is to give us assurance. Now, how does he do that? I've already alluded to it in part. John shows us that assurance is only ever a product of our faith. You cannot be assured apart from saving faith in Christ. Assurance is a fruit of faith. So it stands to reason, if you want to grow in your assurance, you need to nurture your faith. And the most ready way to nurture your faith is to look at the Savior, to feast upon Christ. And that explains John's logic. Think about it. The letter begins with a large view of Christ and his work. It doesn't begin in the way that you or I might start to think through the topic of, of assurance where we would default to start to think about what does my life look like? What do my patterns of obedience look like? 
Where is there sin in my life? John simply sets forth Christ. Above all other things, he wants the reader to take in the Savior in order to nurture their faith, one of the results being an increased sense of assurance. Now, at the same time, a theme that runs all the way through the letter is the theme of obedience. The primary issue when you talk about assurance is that of nurturing your faith. But you cannot neglect the fact that assurance is coupled to obedience. The Holy Spirit will not testify to your spirit that you are in Christ if there is a pattern of disobedience in your life. High levels of assurance are incompatible with low levels of obedience. If there is ongoing sin in your life, then you will not enjoy a sense of assurance. So it is a theme in 1 John, the believer is constantly being called to pursue a path of obedience. And here in our text, John shows us that Christ came that we might not sin. He essentially brings those two strands together in this passage. We must take in the Savior. We must put off sin. And here he shows that the two go hand in hand, that you might not sin. Now, it's worth bearing in mind that some of the most unhappy people in all of life are Christians who persist in sin. Some of the most miserable people in life are Christians who are continuing to sin. How do we achieve a, an ongoing, characteristic perseverance towards holiness? The answer is you look to Christ. And that is what John exhorts us to do this evening. The particular way in which he manages this difficult and challenging topic is to link it with the text that just came before. So it's important to see that in the text before, and I'm looking here at 2.28 through to 3, chapter 3, there's a lot of appearing being spoken about. This is a familiar text that many people know in 1 John, where John says Christ will soon appear that Christ will soon be made manifest before us. And in that day, you don't want to be ashamed because you will stand before him and you will see him as he is. He says, in that day, you'll be like him because you'll see him not with your mind's eye, but with your eyes. And he concludes that well-known portion with the assertion that all those who have this hope purify themselves as he is pure. All those who genuinely hope for the return of Christ, who are eagerly awaiting the appearance of the Savior, will do something about it now. They'll do something about it now. Christians will be active people awaiting the appearance of Christ. 
what John does then is he carries on and he uses that same verb to appear many times in this text in order to, to knit the two paragraphs together. He talks again about the, the Son of God appearing. He talks about the fact that it will be apparent in verse 10. He keeps using that same verb so that when we read it, we would understand there's an intended theological connection. And he essentially starts to answer the issue of how may I purify myself just as he is pure? With that fact still ringing in our ears, everyone who has this hope purifies himself as he is pure. As we allow that to just sit and rest in our minds, John then gives us the means by which we might pursue it. How can I go about the process of purifying myself just as Christ is pure, so that when he appears, I will not be ashamed, but I will stand before him with the utmost joy and be transformed fully into his likeness. That is the question that John is trying to answer. And whereas you and I would be tempted to answer that question by making a beeline towards our own efforts and our own works, and our own strivings, John says the way in which you purify yourself as he is pure as you await for his coming is that you look at the cross. You may have realized it as I read the text. There are two statements in this text. In verse 5, he says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. Then again, in verse 8, he says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. I want to try and argue this evening that this whole paragraph hangs off those two statements. That the whole argument hinges around these two statements concerning Christ's first coming, and in particular, the cross. And so what John is doing is he's saying, as you await the Savior's return, and as you consider that high expectation of how you might purify yourself as he is pure, look back at the cross. Take in some more of Christ. Understand yet more fully what it was that he accomplished when he hung upon the tree. And allow that to be the catalyst, the means, the way in which you purify yourself until the end. So that's John's argument. We're just going to work through the text tonight according to those two statements concerning Jesus' coming. The first one, he appeared in order to take away sins. John begins that section by saying, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Now, we have to remember that just about every negative statement in 1 John is directed towards the false teachers. So this congregation to whom John is writing had experienced some false teaching, specifically a distortion of the person of Christ. That resulted in a distortion of the gospel itself. The false teachers then left and probably took some with them. Those that were remaining are shaken to their core 
And John wants to assure them, at least in part, by showing them how the false teachers were most definitely not of the truth. So when you read negative statements in 1 John, John is usually making some kind of comment about the false teachers. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. It's likely that John here, when he says sin or sinning, has one particular sin in mind. The definite article in the original suggests that John has quite possibly one sin in mind, and he's pointing to the sin of the false teachers. Everyone who sins in that way, that particular sin which was to distort the person of Christ. Everyone who does that is committing lawlessness. And lawlessness in 1 John probably doesn't mean Old Testament law. John doesn't lean on Old Testament law anywhere in this epistle to make an argument. Most likely, he's using the term lawlessness in a much broader way to talk about Rebellion against the character and the will of God. Anyone who sins in the way that you saw those false teachers sinning, they are rebelling against God. Whoever distorts Jesus in the way that they distorted Jesus is rebelling against God the Father. That's what John is saying in verse 4. At that point, we might breathe a sigh of relief. I don't think that either you or I are committing that particular sin of distorting the person of Christ. However, at the same time, I don't think John intends to let us off the hook entirely. What John does in verse 4 is to essentially open up a chasm. It's a chasm that's going to get wider and wider the further we work through this passage. You see, John is going to go on to say some very difficult things. In verse 6, he's going to say, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. In verse 9, he's going to say, "Uh, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. The person born of God cannot keep on sinning. We've all had that experience of reading through 1 John and just feeling the black and white nature of his theology. We've all had that experience of reading through these five short chapters and just being challenged by how bold and clear-cut John's statements are. We've all sensed that John doesn't make any room for a middle ground. In large measure, that, that feeling, which is entirely correct, stems from this text. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. Have you ever heard someone say, I confessed Jesus as my Savior when I was real young, but only made him my Lord a few years ago? What's missing in that picture? In this series, Pastor Paul tells us what having Jesus Christ living in you frees you up to do, but also what it demands. There's no middle ground with Jesus. Either you claim him as your Lord or hide your relationship with him. How do most people see Jesus? as a healer, a wise teacher, or the incarnate God? Is he the one who rules your life? It plays out differently depending on how you see him. 
If you want to learn more about the blessings of walking with God, come to our website, TimelessTruthToday.org, TimelessTruthToday.org. Select Broadcasts on the homepage, and there you'll find an abundance of teaching to help you. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twiss, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. Sunday's almost here, and if you don't have a home church, you're always invited to join us for worship Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. We also have a Sunday evening service at 6 p.m. We're located at 200 West Bethany Court in Thousand Oaks, California. Listen, tomorrow it's part two in our new series, What Does It Mean to Be Found in Christ? I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today.